Hi, I'm Simon Drew, and you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes of the show, as well as articles and information about my one-on-one alignment coaching, then you can head to my website. It's simonjedrew.com. If you do have the means to support the show, then I'd love to see you in my Patreon community. Just go to patreon.com forward slash simonjedrew, where you'll also get access to over 240 episodes recorded before 2020. But for now, enjoy the show. Hey everybody, thank you so much for spending your time with me here on the Practical Stoic Podcast today. Now, something that's happened to me this year uh, has been a kind of a shift in interests uh, when it comes to my own study, Uh, because as you may have noticed, I've been very, very interested in kind of the parallels between Stoic philosophy and the philosophy that you might find in the Bible. And I've never really given the Bible the time of day that I think it deserves uh, just just because, you know, I kind of, I've kind of grew up in a religious household. Obviously, I went to church every week and, um, you know, we studied the Bible every week. So I do have that kind of background where I've, I have studied it in a group setting, uh, but I've never given it the, the time of day to sit down and study it in the same way that I might study the works of Seneca as a philosophical work. And, uh, and man, like as I've been digging into it more, there's just so much good stuff to be gleaned from this document. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's thousands of years old. It's like, why wouldn't we want to get to the bottom of this insane document that has shaped our culture in almost every way? And so that's why I've been so excited to talk to people like our guest today, Dr. Joseph Dodson from the Denver Seminary, Colorado. Now, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation today. This was so fascinating to me and we delved into so many topics that I've been really dying to get into. Uh, so I'm really excited to jump into it and uh, and I want to recommend his book as well. It's called Paul and the Giants of Philosophy. He wrote it with a few other people uh, and he's also got many other books, but this is the one that I've read so far and it, it really fascinating looking at the parallels between uh, the philosophy of Uh, you know, St. Paul and the philosophy of a lot of these ancient uh, Greek philosophers in particular. Uh, But anyway, we're going to jump into this interview soon. But first, I just want to tell you a little bit more about Joey and then we'll get straight into it. So Dr. Dodson received his PhD in New Testament from the University of Aberdeen. He has written a number of articles for journals such as Novum Testamentum, Catholic Biblical Quarterly and the Journal for Jewish Studies. His most recent books include A Little Book for New Bible Scholars with E. Randolph Richards in 2017 and a co-edited volume with David E. Briones, Paul and Seneca in Dialogue in 2017. And apart from all this, he's just a really smart guy. So I'm really excited to jump into this interview and uh, and show you guys. And I hope you enjoy it and send your feedback through. And uh, also, I will be providing the links to where you can grab his books in the show notes and find out more about Dr. Joseph Dodson. So I present to you my interview with Joey Dodson. So Joey, I'm really excited to have you here. Like we've been talking, uh, you know, before the interview and I just want to first give you an opportunity to kind of introduce yourself. Um, you know, obviously I, I've, I've never spoken to um, say a minister on the podcast yet. And, mm-hmm. and this is going to be so wonderful and especially working at, a, at the Denver seminary, like we've just been talking, but I'll, uh, I'll let you introduce yourself and then we'll jump into a fascinating discussion. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, to tell you about myself, I probably should tell you about my family. Uh, I've been married for 25 years, and I first met my wife in primary school, first grade. I was in the cafeteria drinking chocolate milk and eating tater tots when all of a sudden she walked in, and her little eighth grade beauty, uh, first grade beauty, just compelled me to stand on my chair and say, "Who's that pretty girl?" And <laughs> we've pretty much been together ever since. We were class favorites in in first grade, and. When we were 12 years old, I stole my first kiss, a romantic peck on the cheek. And uh, we, we went to school together, we went to uni together. Uh, both of us have an interest in psychology uh, and uh, Christian studies, uh, biblical studies. And so we majored in the same thing, took the same classes. Uh, we got uh, married while we were in university. And then after we graduated, I taught at a public at a, a school for two years while she did her master's of science in psychology. After that, we moved to Houston. And uh, when we were in Houston, we started having children. Uh, I have five children, one, two, three, four, five. Uh, and yeah. uh, Jim Gaffigan says, if you want to know what it's like having five children, uh, imagine that you're drowning in the ocean and someone throws you a baby. Uh, that's, that's kind of what you feel like. Um, but uh, so I had uh, three children when I was uh, in graduate school in Houston. And... Uh, from Houston, we moved uh, to Scotland. I did my PhD at the University of uh, Aberdeen uh, in mm. Aberdeen, Scotland. And there we had our penultimate child. And uh, he was almost 12 pounds when he was born. He was two weeks early. And uh, so I think to this day, he's the biggest child that they've had at the Robert Gordon Hospital. And the Scots are like, yeah, everything is bigger from Texas. And uh, so from Scotland, I finished my PhD and I went to the University of Tübingen to do some postdoc work uh, there in Germany. And then from Germany, uh, we moved to Greece, the island of Cyprus. I teach Greek, and uh, so was working on modern Greek. And then from Greece to Houston, Houston to uh, out, a town called a, a, a state called Arkansas. Some of your people may not be familiar with American geography. It's a, right above Louisiana, right beside Texas. And uh, there we adopted uh, our fifth child. I'm adopted. My uh, biological mother was a high school student, and she gave me up for adoption. And uh, so we've always had it in our heart to, to adopt. And uh, his name is Caspian. And so, yeah, um, now I'm at uh, Denver Seminary. Denver Seminary is a graduate school uh, to prepare pastors, ministers, missionaries, future professors. And um, we, we try to get this great balance, not telling them what to think, but teaching them how to think and to find that perfect uh, balance between scholarship, rigorous thinking and reasoning and faith. And uh, we do our best to uh, produce uh, these Students who, you know, um, who was it? Uh, Socrates said that uh, we'll never reach the utopia until we have kings that are scholars and scholars that are kings. Mm. Uh, our goal is to produce pastors that are scholars and scholars that are pastors. Mm. Oh, that's that's beautiful. I, I couldn't agree more that, you know, I think it's so important that we encourage uh, people in all disciplines and, yeah, especially in the discipline of faith uh, to be scholars as well and to really become the philosopher kings, you know, of, of the next generation. And yeah, yeah. I was thinking about this the other day, you know, Joey, like uh, all too often we kind of get bogged down in thinking, man, the system is so corrupt. It's so broken. You know, what, what can I possibly do? All you have to imagine is like for myself, I think hmm. man, I'm only like 10, 20, 30 years away from potentially being in one of those positions who I look at right now. And I think, wow, you're so mm -hmm. corrupt. Like I'm only mm -hmm. a little bit away from actually being able to make a big difference. Mm -hmm. If I study philosophy now, if I study brilliant ideas, become a scholar, mm -hmm. 
maybe I can be one of those people who maybe mm. steps into a position and is able to help a lot of people through my study of philosophy. And, mm. and, and I think that's so important for people to realize, but man, you've got such a wealth of experience. I'm really excited for this uh, conversation and um, for, for context, uh, for everybody listening, um, you know, I went out and I got, uh, Paul and the giants of philosophy, this, this book that you've uh, edited and, and you've got a chapter in there as well, which is a beautiful uh, collection of these ideas that, um, kind of drawing parallels uh, between between the philosophy of Paul, you might say, and the philosophy mm-hmm. of some of these ancient ancient philosophers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to jump in and 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 kind of ask you first, like, what first drew you towards the ancient world? Uh, was was it religion first that came to you, or was it was it philosophy? What came first, and why were you so interested? So when I was about fifteen years old, I had a history professor who made a passing comment that said uh, Plato was like the New Testament to the Greeks and Homer was like the Old Testament to the Greeks. And I just thought that was fascinating. Uh, growing mm. up in uh, the deep South in the U.S., uh, I had not, I, I'd heard about Socrates, but I'd never read Socrates. And so uh, I went and I was, a clo- I was an athlete, but I was a closet nerd. And so I remember sneaking into uh, the library and getting the Republic, Plato's Republic, so that I could read that. And uh, I was just absolutely fascinated, uh, both at the similarities where they were consonant with things that I knew from the Bible and that culture, uh, but also some of the, the the stark differences, how they would use the same words, but almost like in The Princess Bride, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means, uh, uh, like uh, faith, uh, for example, or fistus. Um, yeah, so I think it started really early, back when I was in high school, but I kept it under wraps uh, quite a bit. Uh, when I went to university, one of my professors, my Greek professor, told me that I had a lot of noise, but uh, if I continued on in Greek, the language, that, that would give me volume. And I think that was mm. a nice way of him saying, you're loud and obnoxious. And, uh, and so actually studying the Greek language uh, also was another inroad into the world of ancient philosophy, especially Epictetus, the Roman Stoic, who wrote in Koine. So his Greek looks a lot like the Greek of the New Testament. Um, mm. And of course, he's one of the most pious uh, Stoic philosophers that we have as well. But so yeah, it started quite early. Uh, my area of expertise is actually the interpenetration, the overlapping and the mutual barring of Judaism, Second Temple Judaism, kind of the Judaism uh, uh, post-exilic um, all the way to 70 AD and a little bit beyond that. Uh, the overlap with that, Greco-Roman philosophy and uh, early Christianity. And so from around 200 BCE to 200 AD um, or, B- or CE, that's where I really get my geek on. And there's so many uh, influences and overlaps between those. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what I've been finding in this book as well. And, and, and also in my own study, you know, as, as I mentioned before the start of the show, I've been really kind of trying to think a little bit deeper about those connections between the Bible say, and, and, and the philosophies that I'm reading and, and there are a lot of parallels and, and, and I, I wanted to maybe jump in. So I, th- I thought that that was a really beautiful analogy that you kind of said there, you know, Plato being kind of the old Testament home of the, the new Testament to the Greeks. By, by, vice versa. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Play, Flip that yeah. around. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you, you talk about uh, Plato's myth of uh, um, in, in, in yeah. uh, Paul and the giants of philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, I actually haven't read a lot of a lot of Plato, and and so like I was I was unaware of this. Can you like explain that a little bit more detail as well? This this myth and how it kind of relates to the philosophy of Paul, because I found that really interesting. 
Yeah. So if Plato is the New Testament, if you will, mutatis mutandis uh, of the Greeks, then the Plato's Republic would be like the Deuteronomy or the Romans. It would be a very significant one. And uh, in it, um, he's talking about questions like what is justice? Uh, what is the kaiosune, if any of your listeners do Greek? Uh, and it, it asks this question, it's how to achieve that utopia. Um, and it's very philosophical, very reasoning, and uh, it, it's just absolutely beautiful. Uh, but at the end, he surprises us uh, mm. because we, we were thinking about philosophy. We were thinking about how to make this world a better place. And he ends with this story of the, the myth of Er, uh, who was a, a man who died in battle. And uh, when he died in battle, he actually goes to the afterlife. Uh, so for uh, Socrates, there was life uh, outside of death. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the Stoics and Epicureans a little bit later, maybe, uh, mm. that uh, didn't necessarily follow that same thing. But you being a musician, you probably know that Socrates actually uses music to help us understand the immortality of the soul. Uh, mm. uh, that's the best analogy that he has. But anyway, so Er goes uh, to the afterlife. He sees these guardians that are separating the righteous from the unrighteous uh, uh, to the right and to the left. And uh, the, the wicked, the, those who didn't practice virtue, uh, go down to Hades for a thousand years, a millennial. Uh, there they are uh, tortured, uh, seemingly to different degrees, uh, while the righteous, uh, the godly, those who practice for, uh, virtue, uh, they go to heaven and have a party on the rooftop, top of the world. Um, you know, it's bliss. It's uh, um, all the scots that you can drink and uh, whatever. But uh, And then so he's watching this happen. And uh, after those a thousand years, they come back before the great judgment. But anyway, this this error has a very unusual phenomenon is that he gets to observe. They tell him, hey, you watch what happens. And then we want you to go back and warn the others. And according to the myth, they're getting ready to light his pyre uh, on fire. And all of a sudden, as you know, the smoke's coming up, he wakes up uh, and it's like, wait, 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 uh, stop in the name of love. And then he begins to explain this. And so uh, here at the end, Plato punctuates uh, this great philosophical treatment, one, one of the best in the ancient world, uh, with this apocalyptic eschatology uh, type ending to remind us that we're not just living for this world, but we're also living for the next ones. Mm. Yeah, it's it's so interesting uh, when you see these ancient philosophers who, you know, so many people kind of draw the line and say, you know, there's 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 no room for say religion in in philosophy, or there's no room for theology, and like, but it, but in many ways, um, you know, when I've been reading the Stoics and I've been seeing these kind of similarities, um, I, I almost think that there's 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 a certain theology behind a lot of these ancient philosophical writings you know there's um the the study of okay well you know we're trying to connect with universal nature whatever you call it and Mm -hmm. seneca was Mm -hmm. kind of like gods or zeus or universal Mm -hmm. nature whatever you call Mm -hmm. it but we're trying to connect with that here's the theology or the philosophical Mm -hmm. practices that are going to help you to understand Mm -hmm. and to be able to Mm -hmm. connect with that uh i want to jump over to to paul obviously because I was actually, you know, until recently, pretty unaware um, that that Paul actually spent a lot of time with and around philosophers, right, and, mm-hmm. and poets. Yeah. And, um, how much time did he spend, uh, you know, in 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 and around philosophy, and yeah. how did that influence his writings? Mm-hmm. Very good. So Paul was uh, a first-century Jew, uh, born mm-hmm. right at the turn of the era, and he was raised in Tarsus, uh, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, but back in the uh, Greco-Roman world, Tarsus was like an Ivy League uh, town, uh, you know, uh, one of the largest gymnasiums 
uh, in the world during that time was in Tarsus. Uh, they had uh, amazing Stoic philosophers so that he grew up around. We're not quite sure how long he was in Tarsus, but it's likely that he went to the pro-gymnasium, so the elementary school and uh, maybe the gymnasium, the high school. Uh, his Greek doesn't seem to be good enough for him to have done university, if you will, uh, mm. during this time, but enough to pick up uh, Greek rhetoric uh, using very similar devices like what we'd see uh, Epictetus using or Cicero using. But at some point, uh, Paul left Tarsus and he went to Jerusalem and he studied under the top rabbi of the day, uh, Gamaliel. And uh, what's interesting is that by this time, uh, Judaism had all, already been influenced by Greco-Roman philosophy. And so what Paul didn't get at Tarsus, he probably got um, in Jerusalem uh, that was baptized in Moses, if you will. Uh, mm. So we're not quite sure how much training he got is the, 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 short, the short answer to that. Uh, we do see in Acts 17, uh, this guy named Luke is writing an ancient historiography. And in Acts uh, 17, uh, the name of his book is Acts, uh, Paul goes to Athens, he goes to Mars Hill or the Areopagus, and there he hangs out with the Epicureans and the Stoics, uh, the same place that Socrates was trialed, actually, tried, actually. Mm. And they hear Paul talking, and uh, they, they, think, they, call, they use this word spermalagos. Uh, and so these professional philosophers call Paul a spermalagos. We don't have a good translation for it. Um, uh, maybe like a bird picking up seeds, where Paul has picked up some philosophical seeds here and there. Mm. Uh, armchair philosopher, Starbucks theologian, something along these lines. But they accuse him of introducing new gods, which if you remember Athens, Socrates, this is what he has tried for as well. And so Paul is, goes before uh, the, the ruling philosophers for judgment, and he begins his speech. He begins his speech by quoting uh, Socrates. So he, he, he says the same introduction that Socrates gave at his trial, Paul gives at his trial. And then, as you know from reading the book, um, he ends up actually quoting some of their own philosophers. And so he knew enough to be able to hang with them, but I don't think anyone would have considered him a professional philosopher. So how much he got from uh, strict training and how much he just got it from the zeitgeist, uh, from uh, the, the spirit of the air, uh, what was written in graffiti, you know, you might have carpe diem as he's uh, writing into Rome, uh, written on the thing, or, or, you know, live according to nature, or whatever it may be. So uh, some of these ideas may just have kind of been part and parcel of uh, his milieu. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's so, it's so incredibly interesting to me, because, you know, I, for, for a long time, I have felt as though, um, you you can kind of read the Bible in a philosophical way, in the same way that you would sort of read Marcus Aurelius, you could read the Bible and say, okay, what's all the good parts that I can kind of glean from this and take mm -hmm. it and use it in my life. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I'm only just on, on the tip of the iceberg trying to, <laughs> trying to, trying to figure all this stuff out. Um, you and me both. <laughs> uh, that, that's, that's, horrifying to hear because how, how far have I got? Um, but but ha, I'd like to know, so we, we can maybe jump into a little bit more of the personal story for yourself and then go into mm -hmm. some of the bigger ideas, but how has your study of philosophy uh, influenced or helped your faith? Because I know that there's a lot of listeners to this podcast who are Christians and they still use mm -hmm. Stoicism. How has that influenced your faith? And, and, and likewise, uh, how has your faith influenced your study of philosophy? Mm, very good. I love that question. 
So I would refer to myself as a Stoic Christ follower. Uh, and uh, with Stoic, I probably would put an asterisk beside that. And I focus predominantly on Roman Stoicism and even to narrow it more so to Seneca. Uh, and then uh, I would say Christ follower more than Christian because um, Christianity as a whole has a lot of stigma and not all Christians actually seem to adhere to the teachings of Jesus. It's more name, it's more nominal than anything else. But uh, it's uh, to borrow from, in, in, in Christianity, in that Christian tradition, you have two different ways to responding to philosophy. You have those who are threatened by philosophy. Uh, you would have like Tertullian, an early church father, that would make this comment. What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Basically, we don't need Athens. We, we've got everything that we need within our faith. But then you would have another uh, stream that would say, no, 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 actually, all truth is God's truth. And there's truth, there's insight, there's things that we can learn from these Greco-Roman philosophies. And so in this tradition, uh, if you have any Roman Catholics uh, that are listening, uh, the, the, the tradition of uh, Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas would be an example of this, who's going to take Aristotle and use uh, Aristotle's principles to help us understand and define uh, this. And so it also comes to the idea of the image of God going all the way back to Genesis chapter one, where humanity is created in the image of God. And so the, depending what you mean by uh, the, the fall, some, some people believe, some Christians believe that uh, the image of God has been so marred that Greco-Roman philosophers and philosophy can't have any truth. Um, I think that uh, the image of God uh, hasn't been marred that much. And so there's glimpses of uh, reason and philosophy that uh, can lead us to the true Lagos, in my opinion, uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, so yeah, I think um, with the New Testament, often it has comments like, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, in your anger, do not sin. Uh, but it doesn't really tell you how to do that. Uh, but then you have, I mean, basically the way they tell you how to do that is follow the spirit of God that's within you. Uh, but then you would go to someone like Seneca, a Roman Stoic philosopher who uh, was a tutor of Nero, uh, who ruled Rome with Burris um, back in the first century, while Nero was just a small lad playing uh, football uh, and chasing kangaroos if he was in Australia. Uh, and uh, <laughs> he's going to come and say, yes, it's true. We can never reach moral formation and perfection without the spirit of God that's within us. But, but that's where he starts. And then he goes and gives us three books on how to handle and overcome anger. And so I, I can go to the philosophers and I see uh, so many just great practical advice uh, that, that helps me uh, live uh, um, as a citizen of heaven, if you will. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that's awesome. I love that. And, and yeah, it's, it's like the Bible tells you kind of like what to do. Philosophy can inform you how to do it as well. Mm -hmm. And something, Joe, something that always um, has never made sense to me is when people come along and they kind of, they they kind of throw away the Bible uh, because, uh, you know, it says stuff about slavery or it says stuff about this or about gay people or what there's, there's stuff throughout the Bible that a lot of people, they, they know that it talks about that. And because it talks about that, they immediately throw it out. Right. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no yeah. value in it. Mm-hmm. And then I look at philosophy and I think, man, some of the philosophers didn't have the most socially mm-hmm. progressive views. Yeah, that's <laughs> are, right. Are you going yeah. to talk about Seneca because he, mm-hmm. he said that you should treat your slaves fairly, but he didn't say that you shouldn't have slaves. Are you going to throw away philosophy because some of them didn't necessarily have uh, the context that we have today? I, I think that that's a fair analogy. And, and 
what, what do you, what do you say to people who, uh, I guess you, you might say those, um, people who make up their mind immediately about the value that can be derived from the Bible without actually, without actually diving into it first. Yeah, very good. Growing up uh, in the deep South, we had all of these axioms, uh, these just wise proverbs, uh, cultural proverbs. And one was eat the meat, uh, but spit out the bone. And I think mm-hmm. both in philosophy and in uh, the Bible, there, there's, uh, there, there's great meat that's nurturing, that helps us grow up in our understanding. Uh, but there's also bones. And all, those bones are often cultural bones. And uh, once, it's unfair to hold the Apostle Paul, for example, and Seneca or Aristotle uh, up to the same standard of where we are. Uh, but if we look at them in light of where they were during that time, Paul was quite the feminist. Paul was uh, quite the defender of those who had been sexually abused. Um, Paul was uh, quite the one who was for emancipation of slaves. Uh, and so also Seneca. So Paul and Seneca, they may not be as far as we would like for them to be, but with respect to where they were, that their reason, their sanctified reason had brought them, they were a lot farther along than where they were in the culture. And so uh, I think one is that the the Bible maybe needs new PR uh, because it's had some bad PR and sadly it's mm. had uh, bad preachers that are giving it uh, bad PR. But I would encourage people to actually just go through the New Testament and read it um, and to see all of the great meats. And then uh, when they do come upon uh, a bone, if you will, to realize that that bone probably is rooted more in the culture than it is in their ideas and their philosophy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and that's important. the The question of culture is just so important because mm. things change, you know, and 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 all the mm-hmm. time and constantly. And you know, it's like I, I always think of, you know, what are the things that I believe today? What are the cultural aspects of our society that we think mm-hmm. about today that a hundred, a thousand, two thousand years from now they're going to look back on and and say, how could they have possibly? And I would hope that mm-hmm. what they do in the future is they say. Uh, let's take the good, as you say, and let's leave the bad. Mm-hmm. Leave, let's leave the yeah. bones out. But um, so, I want to jump into a, a few kind of similarities that I see between, say, the Stoics and and um, and the Bible law mm-hmm. um, that th- that I didn't necessarily find in this book because I, I want people to grab this and I want people to get the value out of that. But um, something that I have been thinking about for a while. I'm going to read this passage from Marcus Aurelius, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been thinking, uh, actually, it was, it was very fortunate. You know, this morning, just before I jumped on this call, I was um, flicking through YouTube, just doing some, some last minute kind of getting inspiration. And uh, I came across a talk that uh, Rupert Sheldrake was doing uh, where he was discussing um, seeing prayer as almost the, um, the Christian equivalent of say meditation, you know, mm-hmm. as a way to connect inwardly and to, uh, mm-hmm. you, you know, we, we, we too often throw away the idea of prayer because it's attached to a religion. Mm-hmm. We don't often see the psychological benefit. And, mm-hmm. and then I thought, uh, you know, the Stoics did talk about praying like Marcus mm-hmm. Aurelius, for example, here, he says, he's actually praying to the universe. You might say, he says, mm-hmm. everything harmonizes with me, which is harmonious to thee. O universe. Nothing for me is too early or too late, uh, which is in due time for thee. Everything is fruit to me, which is, which thy seasons bring O nature, mm-hmm. uh, from thee all things, uh, sorry, from thee are all things in thee are all things to thee, all things return, you know, and that to me, I read that and I'm like, 
wow, that's, <laughs> that's a prayer to the universe. Mm. That's, and mm-hmm. I think that the Stoics kind of saw prayer as a way of accepting our fate, accepting and aligning with the universe's direction so that yeah. we can um, leave space for what we have to learn from it. Uh, how do you see prayer? How did Paul see prayer or the, the Bible? Um, and, and do you think that there are some commonalities between sort of the ancient philosophical view of prayer and, and say what is taught in the Bible? Yeah, very good question. It's one I haven't thought thoroughly through, so I'll give you my best uh, sure. response off the cuff. Uh, one thing that we need to understand that, that I think that even undergirds this is the cosmology of similarities between Stoicism and Christianity. So Mm. the Stoics believed that there was a difference between the soul and the spirit, psuche and panuma. And the, everything that had life had psuche, it had soul. Uh, But panuma was something that only humans had. Uh, It's made of the same material. It's a fiery type material. It even has matter. Uh, Mm. And, uh, but the location of the panuma, uh, was in the mind. And what separated the spirit from the soul, uh, humans from the rest of creation, is that we have God's spirit inside of us, uh, in our mind, that helps us reason, that helps us have the mind of God, uh, the mind of nature of using the Stoics. Uh, but it's also is how we communicate with mm. God. And so I think the very, very similar type of idea that you would have in Christianity as well is that uh, you're, you're going to have this idea of how do you not be conformed to the world, but be transformed? Uh, Paul says it's by the renewing of the mind. And so this idea of the spirit of God that's in uh, the, the, the person is how they communicate with God. And so I think, um, and one thing that I like to do is rather than saying, well, this is how Christianity is different from the philosophers or this is how they're exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's fascinating to think about if, if these, if, if Paul and Seneca were having a pint together mm. fosters in australia maybe i don't know um but uh here in Col- here in colorado would be a uh, craft beer you know if we were having a pint how and they're having this discussion after a couple of uh, pints uh, where would they say there's agreement and disagreement and this type of dialogue that helps us understand christianity better and stoicism better and uh, so i think uh if, if paul were having this conversation with uh, seneca he would say something to the fact that you know your desire to pray is actually proof and evidence of god that you're being drawn to him and so uh, for Paul, he's going to say to the Stoics and Epicureans uh, on Mars Hill and the Areopagus that uh, God has uh, left a witness inside of the, the Gentiles. Paul's a Jew at this time, is a Jew, and he says the Gentiles. And so I think for first, one of the points of comparisons is that everyone prays, and that idea of prayer is that which uh, shows us that uh, we are being drawn to this higher power. Um, of course, with the Christian prayer, it's going to be in the name of Jesus Christ. And so that's going to be a, a quick area of a fork in the road where yeah. uh, Marcus Aurelius uh, has the spirit of God inside of him. And so he just prays to the universe, to nature, uh, whereas uh, Paul believes that uh, Jesus Christ came and died for our sins and our transgressions uh, and ascended back into the heavens and uh, is therefore our mediator. And so we don't have to come on our own in our own wickedness and lack of uh, virtue, but instead uh, we come in the righteousness of Christ. It gives us that uh, confidence more so than when we pray. And so it's not just a punting to the fate, uh, but we have someone in our corner, if you will. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that from you. And that's what I wanted to get. So it's like, what's, what's your own personal connection with, with, with mm. prayer as well. And um, 
I, w- I want to get this this really clear because this is an idea that I've been trying to grasp as well is the stoic view of the soul or of the mm-hmm. spirit. Um, yeah. So if if I'm correct, you, you can correct me, but so you're saying the spirit is basically the thing that flows around and makes all of this thing work, you might say, um, or you, you might call it God. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. but, but, but they kind of viewed it as... Uh, the cosmos is is one working whole right so that's kind of the spirit is flowing through everything making it work but the it, the, the soul is our connection to that um because it's yeah. sort of a fragment of that is okay. that is that right yeah similar so with the panuma it's going to be connected to the, with the spirit it's going to be connected to the logos and yep. so the log the logos is god's I'm a big Star Wars fan. So yeah. uh, my firstborn son, we call him Kenobi. Uh, so basically the Lagos, the Panuma of God for the Stoics is like the force. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the force inside of a human is the Panuma uh, that's connected in the brain. Uh, yeah. And so you'll often see Panuma and Nuos, Nous, attitude, mind, thinking, and reason connected to this. And so the soul is just the life force that makes our heart beat. Um, and so Plants have a soul, animals have a soul, uh, all humans, trees have a soul, uh, but it's just that that gives you life. But the this, this spirit is actually the same type of material as a soul, but is that which enables us to communicate uh, with God. Okay, okay. So, so the thing that you might say... Um... Uh, differentiates us from the from the animals or the or the plants and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. is our own unique uh, our own unique spark of the divinity they may, might have called it, which is rationality, right? Like our ability to to reason and to understand the mm-hmm. logos. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Because this is yeah. this is all stuff that I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to get my brain around it, and yeah. you know, not knowing right. Greek and. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's an area to go down as well. Like your understanding of Greek, uh, to what extent has that, has that, uh, well, I'll put it like this. I, I mm. want to learn German soon. And my wife and I, we're going to be planning to move to Germany. You've already <laughs> been there. You've talked about uh, that. Yeah. Man, I'd love Those to get some. St- yeah, it's so <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I've been thinking like, man, I also want to learn Latin and German, you know, because if, sorry, Latin and Greek, because if I was able to learn that, man, it would open up the world of possibilities for what I could understand. Mm -hmm. Just how, uh, how much more have you been able to understand reading these ancient texts Mm -hmm. by knowing Greek? Yeah. So I tell my students that uh, reading an English translation or German translation or French translation, depending on your audience uh, uh, of an ancient work is like kissing your spouse or your lover through saran wrap. Uh, you're, you're making a connection, but it's not quite the same. Uh, so it's like perhaps watching a, an old movie uh, in black and white uh, with subtitles. Uh, and so you're not able to fully engage in it because, you, because you're reading the subtitles the whole time and there's translations that are happening. And so what happens when you actually get into the ancient Latin, you get into the ancient Greek, is that it removes the sense of saran wrap. Um, it brings you to the point where you're seeing more high def, uh, 4D, uh, and the, the, the more you study the Greek and uh, the Latin, the, the more things that you see. But uh, for example, if, if, would you give you a couple examples Please, that come to yeah, mind? Definitely. Yeah. So um, Paul's going to say that it is by grace that a person is saved through faith. And the word grace is the word for gift. It's charis. And in the 
Christian tradition, especially post-Luther in the Protestant tradition, we've had this idea that grace is this uh, unconditional gift. There's no strings attached to it whatsoever. And so, uh, and this actually doesn't come from Luther. It comes from Immanuel Kant and Derrida. Uh, and so it's really a product of the Enlightenment. But once you go back to the first century around there, you realize that that understanding, that translation of charis, of kara, grace and gift, um, is that's not even an option. Uh, grace had strings attached in the ancient world. And so Seneca is going to use the Latin version of this. And the way that he explains it is of uh, you playing catch with someone. And so it's a free gift. I throw, you mm. drew the ball, Simon the ball, and you catch it. But the expectation is, is that you're going to throw it back. And so I give you the gift, this grace gift, and you throw it back. And we continue to, to throw it back. And it's not about the ball. It's about the relationship, the conversations that we're having with that. And so understanding uh, charis, um, this idea of grace, not from a uh, English translation and Protestant uh, accretion, but understanding of the ancient world helps me understand what um, Paul, as he says this, means. Um, that so God gives us this grace, but there are strings attached. And that strings attached is that we would live according to virtue, that we would live uh, a life worthy of the calling that we received. And so walking in virtue is that string that's attached. So that's an example of how mm. it removed the saran wrap from my eyes or moved me from a black and white to uh, a more high def understanding of the New Testament because of my understanding of Epictetus and Seneca. Yeah, no, that's that, that's brilliant, and and seriously, it's it's so inspiring to me. It really just makes me think. If if I want to really understand this philosophy enough, if I want to understand these ancient texts, mm. uh, who who was it? I think it was Thomas Jefferson, um, but I don't want to get that that wrong. But it was one of the uh, you know the, the the great American scholars um, wrote a letter to um, one of his nephews, I believe, and said, if you're going to study. Um, ancient books and stuff you need to learn the language right because that it's it's going to you're not going to get the same meaning and that's what i'm kind of getting mm -hmm. here it's really important mm -hmm. and i get that from all of the scholars who i talk to mm -hmm. um but th this idea of grace can we can we touch on that for a second because yeah um, can, can i just I'll, say one last thing about please, that yeah. about the uh, our translations they're good translations if you watch a black and white movie with subtitles you're still going to get the overall gist yeah but you're missing the finer points the details yeah. and so I don't think that if you don't read Greek and don't read Latin or don't read German or French, that uh, these primary sources are, uh, are, I might as well not even do it. Um, you're still getting the, the major gist and the idea, but it's the, the details. So I don't want to dissuade anyone from reading uh, Socrates because yeah. they don't know ancient Greek. No, of course. And you might even say it's kind of like those final little sanding touches on the sculpture, you know, it's just kind of like polishing it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. This idea of grace, I wasn't planning on asking this today, but I thought it'd be interesting to, to go down this, this avenue because I've, I've been really feeling, uh, I've been really interested in the psychological significance of grace, you know, the psychological mm. benefit mm. of, you might say, um, that moment in your life when you realize, you know what, wow, I am so imperfect. I never get things right. <laughs> I'm always going to mess up. Uh, yeah. you know, I, I, I rarely make the right decision, but mm -hmm. I'm a human. That's okay. That's how I always will be. The psychological significance for releasing that kind of overthinking hyper perfect vision of what we could be mm -hmm. in exchange for a forgiveness, you know, Epictetus, he said, um, 
you know, your, your, your spiritual progress should be based on self scrutiny and also self kindness. Right. So you got to forgive yourself from time to time. Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk more to this psychological significance of having grace, this idea of, you know, whether you say it comes from God or whether you come to it by yourself, coming to that place where you realize, you know, I'm imperfect, but that's okay. I can still keep on trying mm-hmm. to be virtuous. Yeah, very good. So for, I'll start with Paul and then we can go to Seneca yeah, and please. the Stoics from there. But um, in the ancient world, uh, we need to remember that uh, it was a honor shame culture. And so the opposite of shame is grace. And so the, the biggest fear, or one of the biggest fears uh, from what I hear from the honor shame culture is the idea of being embarrassed, um, is being publicly shamed. And uh, so one, one thing that Paul is going to do is that he's going to have, in a sense, four virtues, faith, hope, love, and grace. Uh, these are going to be the, the, the four main ones. And of course, for Paul, the greatest is going to be love with these. But uh, for Paul, uh, in this honor shame culture, which he seemed to be doing really well before uh, he met Christ, uh, as far as uh, his own self-maintenance of this, but he realized that uh, one of the major differences between the Judaism in which he was practicing uh, and Christianity is this uh, amazing grace. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, there's a quip about uh, C.S. Lewis that they were having this uh, world religion uh, conference and they were trying to decide what's the difference between Christianity and Buddhism and Islam and all these different ones. And Lewis was late for some reason and he gets there. They've been going on for hours and hours. Like, you know, is it this? Is it that? Is it this? And they're like, no, it can't be this. It can't be this. And Lewis walks in and is like, oh, that's, that's easy. The answer is grace. And according to the legend, they were like, oh yeah. And they walked out. And having been around <laughs> scholars, I doubt that that was the case, but uh, you know, it is something that uh, sets uh, for, for Paul, it sets him apart from the other uh, religions during his time uh, that you had this God who, despite our sin, even though we were dead in our tres- transgressions uh, and our uh, trespasses, God uh, was willing to forgive us and remove our shame uh, because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so you're going to see the word grace uh, recurring. It's a light motif. There's a good German word for when you move to Deutschland. Uh, it's this recurring theme throughout all the New Testament. If you were to get the New Testament and you were squeeze it, uh, if grace does not come out, um, then you, you have the wrong New Testament uh, mm-hmm. because it's just full of this grace. And uh, most people who aren't even Christians are familiar with the tale of the prodigal son who had taken this inheritance and had gone and spent it on prostitutes and uh, just uh, lechery and all these different things. But then he comes back and uh, wanting to be a slave and his father races out, which is quite scandalous in the ancient world, throws his arm around his son and accepts him uh, just that he, as he is. And so uh, one thing that about uh, Christianity and we see this especially in the person of Jesus Christ, is that um, it was those who didn't want grace. Uh, it was those who, the, what the religious leaders of the day would look down upon, the downcast and the outcast, that uh, Christ, God came to save and seek and to, to draw uh, there. Now, from my understanding, what, whereas we see the New Testament, grace, 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 you get to Epictetus and Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, uh, Zeno and Chrysostom, and you don't see this idea of grace as much. Um, you do see the authenticity. I'm not there yet. Um, I'm trying. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't judge me according to my words because I'm getting better. Um, and Seneca, we use the idea of uh, with moral formation almost. Uh, and when I, so when I was a teenager, I had agony quite a bit. And, uh, I, uh, I, and so Seneca is going to use the idea of sin. And um, 
yeah, sin with respect to acne, that there's a time where we have acne, but if we practice philosophy, it's going to move us from having just being broke out in acne, acne to the occasional zit. You know, we have pimples mm. around, if you will. Do you call them, call them zit or pimples in Australia? Yeah, we call them zits. Yeah. Zits, yeah. Um, and so you have zits, uh, but as you continue to train philosophy, you move to the point where you have a, a clean face. Uh, you likely will maybe get a pimple here and there or zit here and there when you, but, mm. and so you have this type of progression. And so it's not so much this divine grace um, that's been given to you as much as just being patient with yourself and patient with each other. Mm. Yeah. In my that, understanding that, at least. Yeah. And, and that's such an important philosophical, psychological idea mm. and theological, mm. you know, it's so important for people to recognize that, uh, you know, it, we are so imperfect and, and, and we never will be perfect. And, and, you know, I was thinking the other day, it's like, there's always something you can be doing better. Right. But if you couple that attitude with, with, Hey, I'm imperfect, but there's also so, always something I can be doing better. That kind of sounds like the kind of back and forth that you're talking about there. It's like, Hey, yes, I'm imperfect. Great. Thanks for that ball. Uh, you know, yeah. yeah. Like, and I never will be okay. Um, but here's it back. I'm going to give you some virtue, right? I can still keep on trying to be virtuous in my actions, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, maybe a, a good segue into uh, an article that I wrote that deals with Seneca and Paul using the metaphor of the cross. So you probably are familiar that uh, crucifixion was the major go-to to execute uh, non-Romans uh, in the mm. ancient world. Now, the Romans didn't come up with crucifixion. The Persians did, but the Romans perfected it. And, uh, uh, and a Roman, a, a proper Roman citizen would never say the word cross, a crux. It was something that, you know, that, that they would say in the ghetto, um, as uh, Cicero would say later on. Uh, and, but Seneca actually talks about himself being nailed to the cross. Uh, mm. And the cross for Seneca represents sin. And he's not on that cross by himself. He's been crucified with Cato and Socrates. He gives this list. Um, and uh, he is writing this metaphor of the cross in response to his detractors who are saying that he's a hypocrite. He says, no, 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 I'm not a hypocrite. Uh, I, I realize that I'm on this cross, this sin, uh, and I'm trying to get off. And that's the difference between me and you is that whereas I'm on this cross of sin trying to get off, you are on the cross basking in it, uh, in your sin and spitting and mocking me for trying to get off. And so this mm-hmm. is his metaphor of the cross, which is quite astounding since he was a Roman senator. Uh, and so the idea of a Roman citizen or senator being crucified uh, along the lines with uh, Plato and Cato and so on and so forth uh, was one of the most scandalous metaphors, I would think, that anyone who read Seneca during that time uh, would have come across. But uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with the idea that Paul also has this idea of being crucified. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, not I, but Christ that lives within me. And the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And so Paul is going to take the literal historical crucifixion of Jesus. And Paul, who also is a Roman citizen, who was born a Roman citizen, is going to put himself up on the cross. Uh, But the difference between Paul and Seneca with respect to moral formation is that Paul has this idea that he's, our, he's off of the cross or his, his sin is dead because of Christ. And so sin no mm. longer has to be the boss of him. Yeah, he's not perfect yet, um, uh, he, but forgetting what is behind, he's pressing forward. And so there's much more of a swagger uh, that Paul has with respect to his ability to walk in virtue because of that grace. 
than what we do with Seneca. And so uh, Seneca is going to talk about, you know, there's miles and miles to go and I only inch along. Uh, but, but I'm inching, I'm, I'm doing it, it's that progress. Mm. And so here's an example of both of them understanding uh, the cross. But for Paul, uh, the, the, the difference that makes for him is this idea of the grace that uh, empowers him actually to live the righteous standard of God. Mm. Yeah, and 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 this is this is just such great stuff to talk about, especially in today's culture, right? Because I mean, mm. <laughs> I don't want to go too too deep into it. It gets very political very fast. But man, we're we're living in a crazy cancel culture and a shaming culture, you know, especially mm-hmm. in America. I think Australians mm-hmm. are a little bit different. You know, we haven't quite gone down that avenue yet. Mm-hmm. But in America, it's 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 a very it's a point your finger kind of culture at the moment, mm-hmm. and I think yeah. that. I don't think that that's good for relationships. I don't think that's good for people. I don't think that's good for mm-hmm. our psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what what's helpful is that I'm imperfect. You're imperfect. We're all imperfect. That's yeah. we want to improve. So let's keep mm-hmm. on trying to improve, but mm-hmm. let's not yeah. become the kind of people who are so focused on pointing out other people's flaws when, yeah. you know, like don't point out the speck in somebody else's eye before yeah. you see the, the plank in yours. In yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, I want to, I want to jump to another idea that, um, and I know, I, I know you like to talk about Seneca and stuff a lot. I'm, I'm very sorry. I'm going to Marcus Aurelius here. Um, but well, I like Marcus Aurelius as well. Uh, Marcus yeah. Aurelius is, uh, you know, he's kind of what Taylor Swift is the classical music. So yeah. Seneca would be kind of the classical music, but uh, Marcus Aurelius is going to be more of the pop star of the age. But with that said, it's amazing pop music that uh, Marcus Aurelius uh, gives. And he becomes that example of what we were talking to you earlier about that philosopher king. Uh, mm. So he's, you know, one of the, and it's interesting that Aurelius was uh, an emperor during the time of a, a pandemic. Uh, and so, yeah, but anyway, so yeah, yeah I, I do like Marcus Aurelius. So I just prefer Seneca. Of course. Yeah. And, and Seneca's my guy as well. Hey, like, I, I love, I love him. Hey, it's just it, cause he's so real. You know, I've talked about this with Nancy Sherman. Uh, Seneca mm-hmm. brings things down to kind of the, to kind of the ground level, you know, and, and he's, mm-hmm. he is so imperfect and you know, he's a hypocrite, you know, he's imperfect. Um, yeah. But, but you can kind of read that in him, like mm-hmm. the one student to another kind of thing. Um, but yeah, this idea um, has been really fascinating me lately. Um, you know, I, I remember, you know, growing up in church and one of the core ideas that they teach us is, hey, no matter what happens to you, you are formed by God to be able to bear whatever happens to you. Right. And, mm-hmm. and if you can't, then you'll be dead. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm-hmm. and that's, that's, um, that, that right there is, um, is a stoic idea. I mean, even you think about, um, you think about Seneca talking about, uh, how, you know, the good thing about pain is if you feel too much of it, then you won't feel it at all because you'll be dead. So, um, maybe don't That's complain right. about pain because you can always bear it. Um, but Marcus Aurelius realized that and he says, nothing happens to any man, which he is not formed by nature to bear or God. Um, mm-hmm. The same things happen to another and either because he does not see that they have happened or because he would not show a great spirit, he is firm and remains unharmed. Uh, it is a shame then that ignorance and conceit should be stronger than wisdom. Um, but there is this idea flowing through ancient philosophy of you are formed by nature to be mm-hmm. able to figure out your life. Your, Marcus Aurelius also said, you know, you're going to face today's problems with the same reason that you faced yesterday's problems and the day before. Mm-hmm. 
you've got yeah. it in you. You contain everything that you mm-hmm. need. You just need yeah. to learn to tap into that, right? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly yeah. the same as what it says in in the Bible. Um, I mm-hmm. can't exact remember the exact verse. You might remember it, but it, it essentially says, uh, you know, you're formed by God to be able to bear whatever trials come your way. Mm-hmm. Um, so bear them with grace, you might say. Mm-hmm. Can yeah. you speak to this idea of us having what is necessary within us, whether it's by nature or by God, mm-hmm. and the importance of understanding that moving forward in our in our journey of, of virtue. Good. Well, Peter, um, the, the apostle of Jesus Christ, he makes a comment that uh, God has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And so mm-hmm. you have that uh, summed up in uh, Peter's epistle. I think it's first first Peter that. Uh, sorry, Second Peter, this is God's giving you everything you need for life and godliness. Uh, but giving us everything we need that doesn't mean that we just have it and now we can just lay back and live. We have to put that into practice. And so uh, Peter will end up saying, so therefore, make every effort to add to this faith that you have, uh, love. And to this love, uh, make sure you were add virtue. And to virtue, self-control. And to self-control, brotherly love. And so uh, God has given us uh, nature. We have been equipped everything that we need. Now, one point that the Christians and the Stoics, uh, Marcus Aurelius, uh, I think will agree with is that uh, uh, it's the spirit of God, this reason inside of us that uh, we have that helps equip us uh, for it. Uh, but once again, we have to react to that reason. Uh, to go back to Seneca, I feel like the, 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 the kid that used to play tag on the playground and, you know, every time... Uh, you got close to him. He would just stand by the base and like, can't, can't get me. Can't get me. Do you, do you remember this kid? Were, were you I probably kid? was that kid. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, for me, it's that Seneca and Paul, but uh, with Seneca, he's going to say that uh, no man can, can achieve this, uh, uh, this moral formation where the spirit of God, not within him or her. Uh, but the difference between Seneca saying that and Paul saying that is Seneca goes on to say that he says, there is a God within us, Lucilius, but who he is, we do not know what his name is, we don't know. And so, uh, whereas in general, the general idea is that, yes, God in nature has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Uh, the Christians are going to come and say, but the, the great paradigm of that, uh, the culmination of that is not just the spirit of God, but it's the incarnation of God's son who actually lived this life out in front of us so that we could uh, have that ability. And so that, that would be a point of difference. But yeah, the, going back to the similarities, uh, as you're saying, is that we do have this uh, power, but that power is that which comes from God. But at the same time, uh, we have to exercise it. So you would have Paul saying to his Lucilius, if you will, Timothy, uh, train yourself for godliness. Gymnazo pros eusebea. Godliness doesn't just happen when you say a prayer. Godliness doesn't just happen when you go to church or when you go to a lecture hall. Godliness is something that you have to gymnazo. You have to train yourself to do. And so even though God has given us everything we need for life and uh, godliness, virtue, even if no, nature has done that, we have to train ourselves to use it. And so you have to stoic practice that uh, Seneca or Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius would, would bring out. Uh, and you would have uh, Christian worship. And so another thing that you're going to have a point of agreement among the Stoics and the philosophers with uh, Christian is that we don't achieve virtue by ourselves. Um, it's not a solo race. It's not a individual journey, but instead it's a corporate uh, pursuit that we have to do. And so we have people in our lives. And so the, what God has given us for life and virtue includes the people that are around us to sharpen one another, to uh, encourage one another, to rebuke and challenge one another. And you'll see this uh, in 
the letters of Seneca, the essays of Seneca, and also the meditations of Aurelius that uh, we can't do this by ourselves. We need the spirit of God that's within us. And we also need uh, community. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That that's, that's what's been really fascinating to me about reading Seneca lately is, and this is something that I never really grasped fully um, because I wasn't in that right state of mind, you know, who knows what it is that makes us at sometimes understand something, things and at sometimes just be completely blind. But, um, you know, the, the, the divinity that Seneca talks about and, you know, there's, there was this passage that I found recently from, um, uh, from, uh, his on, on the shortness of life, uh, mm-hmm. where he talks about, uh, how, how we we only have access to two things it's we have access to universal nature and our individual virtue and if Mm -hmm. you can only focus on those if you can just wed yourself to the universal Mm -hmm. nature and to your individual virtue your ability to make good decisions Mm -hmm. then you can be free right but if you attach Mm -hmm. yourself to anything outside of that then you're setting yourself Mm -hmm. up to fail um but there there is a lot of talk amongst the stoics about this divinity and um I, I guess I wanted to jump over to something that uh, that we d- discussed before the episode that really stuck at, st- st- stood out to me. You said that um, Timothy is to Paul what Lucilius is to Seneca uh, in the way that they would. Uh, can, can you can you kind of explain uh, what you mean by that? Yeah. So Seneca's epistles, if you haven't read them uh, for the, in your audience, um, they're written to his to bring Star Wars back into the mix. I think Star Wars is a great place to always bring back the mix. Mm. His Padawan learner. And so these epistles are written to uh, Lucilius to prepare him. Seneca's writing this towards the end of his age. Um, so he's reached retirement. And I think he probably uh, can feel the, the wind, uh, the tides are turning with Nero. And so uh, he's trying to invest uh, to pass the great deposit of truth and understanding that he has uh, to his young learner. And so he's writing this, but one thing that we see with Seneca as, he's, as he writes this to Lucilius is that he's, a, he's expecting other people to listen. He realizes mm. that uh, his words are going to endure long after him. And so, uh, whereas Seneca is trying to pass on and be that, uh, that, that image in which uh, uh, Lucilius imitates, um, as, uh, so for Paul, he has this young Timothy who is half Greek, um, half Jew, uh, and uh, Paul uh, meets uh, this guy in uh, Lystra and Derby, if I remember correctly, uh, Turkey, ancient uh, modern day Turkey, and uh, takes him under his wing and begins to pour and in, invest in him and uh, train him. And so what we see Seneca doing 120 epistles, uh, we have Paul often, uh, well, we have two letters that Paul writes uh, specifically to Timothy, called First and Second Timothy in your Bible, where he is uh, trying to give this great deposit of truth and hand it down to Timothy as he's getting ready to die under the hand of Nero. So there we have mm. a connection between Paul and Seneca. Uh, and, uh, you know, Paul's going to make comments like, um, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I'm like this offering that's poured out. And it's very similar mm. to kind of Seneca's last will and testament. And uh, one, one thing that both of them are going to say to their Timothys and to uh, to the Tim to me and to Lucilius, going to tie this back to your previous question, is that um, uh, God allows us to suffer. We we have been called to suffer, uh, as Paul's going to use a military metaphor, as a Seneca, uh, that we've been called as soldiers uh, in this battle that's not against flesh and blood. For Seneca, it's against death. Uh, for Paul, it's his cosmological powers that we're going against. But uh, suffering is our destiny. It's part of who we are. 
Um, and so when you sign up for Stoicism, when you sign up for Christianity, you're signing up for suffering. But suffering is God's tool, his anvil, in order to form his children. And so uh, you would have someone like the author of Hebrews chapter 12. And what we'd see in Epictetus is that uh, the father only disciplines the proper sons, uh, the bastards, the illegitimate sons, uh, the father leaves alone. And so you going through suffering is on the one hand, God uh, forming, you're forming you to his image. Um, and then secondly, it's that testing. And so Seneca will say, you know, I feel so sorry for those people who have got the prize, uh, who never ran the race. Uh, mm. And so you can get the prize, uh, but never win the race. And when you do that, you actually lose. And running the race for Seneca is enduring the suffering, the missiles of uh, sufferings that uh, are coming your way. It might not hit you right now, but one of them are going to hit you sooner or later, be it physical, uh, social, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that, that's a really interesting point, too, is, is because whether you sign up for Stoicism or for Christianity or not, mm -hmm. uh, you're going to suffer, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's just a fact of life. If you don't suffer, yeah. then, I mean, good on you. Thank, like, <laughs> that's, that's a beautiful place mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess uh, what you're saying is that by signing up for, for Stoicism or for Christianity, what you're signing up for is an understanding of the, uh, of the uh, well, I guess you could say the importance of that suffering for you mm -hmm. and also how, yeah. to, how to win the game of suffering. Mm -hmm how to face mm -hmm. it with That's equanimity, right. right? Yeah. So neither the Christians nor the Stoics uh, were like, yeah, give me suffering. Bring it on. Yeah. Bring it on. I want to suffer. I want to suffer. L later Christian martyrs, yes. But uh, in the first century, it wasn't that they were seeking suffering, but they just knew that that was part of them. Uh, for Seneca, he had been exiled to Corsica. Uh, you know, he'd been tried. He almost was killed by Gaius. Uh, and he's does finally get it by Nero. So that all of the political suffering that's surrounding him, his detractors that are calling him hypocrites. Uh, for Paul, he's got physical suffering and persecution. And so both of them realized that suffering was part of life. Um, but what they had was a, a swagger in the face of suffering. So Paul will say that in suffering, we have a, a calcasomai, a, a shout of triumph. A, um, not that I am suffering, but is that all you have? Because I realized, and this is Romans chapter 5, I realized that my suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character yeah. hope and hope will not disappoint me because the spirit of God has been poured out into my life. And so also with Seneca, he's going to say, you know what, this suffering, it, 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 it steals my virtue. And so he says to his attractors, Hey, bite me, bite me hard. Uh, you, you, you're going to break your teeth before you break my skin uh, because of this, uh, inner fortress of virtue that he's developed. And so it does give them this confidence in the face of uh, suffering and a purpose that sometimes uh, people who don't know Christianity or Stoicism uh, may be amiss. And they just have this hopeless despair in suffering, which is sad. Uh, let, mm -hmm. me, let me say one more thing. Um, Please. You said that good, good on you if you don't suffer, uh, uh, for, but neither Paul nor uh, the Stoic would say good on you if you don't suffer. They, they actually think mm -hmm. that uh, suffering you, you can't know glory unless you know suffering. Uh, mm. And so uh, for Paul, he's going to connect that, that, yeah, we're going to share in the glory of God. Uh, we're going to be heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. But to share in his glory, we also have to share in his suffering. And that suffering is what helps us connect with the rest of the world. So we suffer so that we can empathize and sympathize with other people. And so uh, my wife and I, we had a miscarriage, uh, our first child. And uh, before then, we didn't know how to relate to anyone who had had miscarriages. But now having had that miscarriage and 
weeped and being broken through that as the child was in the third uh, trauma trimester when we had uh, the, the miscarriage, uh, the, the comfort that we received from God and from other people enabled us to comfort now other people, young couples, when they have a miscarriage. And so um, it, it connects us with other people. There's a part of humanity that you're not going to be able to share in, uh, um, weep with and uh, encourage. Um, so th- I think there's an intimacy of friendship that doesn't, that you won't know outside of suffering, but also connects us with the cosmos. Um, so creation mm. is suffering, earthquakes and uh, diseases um, and all these different things. And so uh, when we go through suffering, it not only connects us with God, uh, there's a part of God we won't know outside of suffering. Um, it also connects us with the community around us. There's a, a part of intimacy and authenticity that we won't be able to have with people. Uh, but then it connects us with the universe who's also suffering. Um, and it gives us that hope for creation as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this, this is so interesting to me. And, and, I, and it was actually something that I learned from this book, Paul and the Giants of Philosophy, was uh, the kind of theology behind uh, Christianity, which says that the suffering that we all experience through our persecution, uh, that unites us, that holds us together, and and we suffer together, which is beautiful. And what people tend to forget is that Christianity might not be the... um, the main uh, subject of persecution today. In fact, there's, there's a lot of Christians today, but I mean, back in Rome, uh, I mean, they were being, yeah, yeah. They were being crucified and, and, and it was, it was literally um, dangerous to be a Christian. And so there's, mm-hmm. there's kind of a value there in the theology behind that idea of suffering together. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Uh, Paul is going to use the metaphor of the body. Uh, mm-hmm. that we're all part of the body. We're different members of that. And whereas uh, you have guys like Aristotle, you have people like Cicero had used that before. Um, even, even Plato uh, in the Republic talks about the body with respect, with respect to uh, the, the noble class, the middle class and the lower class. But Paul is going to make it more intimate uh, to the community, to the church. And uh, when one part of the body suffers, all of the parts of the body suffer. And we'll see this in the Epictetus as well. Um, Seneca uses the body at, uh, but he also uses um, the picture of a stone arch, um, and mm. that each one of each person of humanity is part of this brick. Uh, and if you were to take one brick out, then the whole arch will fall. And so uh, we need one another uh, to lean on in order to keep the house from falling down, mm. as it were. And thinking about that analogy, I remember when I was <clears throat> uh, growing up in church, and they taught that. Uh, essentially that Christ was the cornerstone of that archway, mm-hmm. right? Like, so yeah, you that's right. take Christ mm-hmm. out of it and the whole thing mm-hmm. falls down. You know, that's yeah, the yeah. theology behind it. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, th- this has just been such an interesting conversation, Joey, seriously, because I, this is the sort of stuff that I love because I, I, I don't fall into the category of those people who say uh, you have to separate philosophy from religion there's something deeply Mm -hmm. irrational deeply wrong about religion so we Mm -hmm. have to throw that out over there and we have to put philosophy over here i just don't Mm -hmm. sit in that camp you know i think there's so much good to be gleaned from both Mm -hmm. um but i want to ask you one more question um something you you were talking about before we started this conversation was um how you and your wife parent your children in a way where you encourage them to do sports and to do music Mm -hmm. um as a way of um you know training the body and training the soul um Mm -hmm. can you talk to the importance of music in your life and sport and 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 Mm -hmm. what it kind of teaches you practically yeah very good 
Uh, so I, we get this idea from Plato's Republic, as I mentioned before, and I have five children, as I mentioned before, and we, we homeschool our children uh, because mm. uh, we wanted to teach them Greek and Latin from an early age, and they don't teach that in grade school mm. here. We wanted them to be able to read primary sources rather than secondary texts. But That's uh, so, so cool, it, by the way. <laughs> That's awesome. With, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I'm more the language philosophy geek, and my wife is the science math geek and mm. so it, it worked out well for us and we were traveling to scotland and germany and, and greece and all around and so it made sense uh, for us as well so um but with that uh, we wanted to make sure that uh, we took principles both from the bible uh, and from philosophy kind of marrying both of those two because those who separate philosophy and religion uh, again i think that's more of a understanding of modern enlightenment um and beyond uh, maybe some of the post-modernity or post-post-modernity is bringing some of that back uh, uh, where we do see this overlap between those. But in the ancient world, philosophy and religion, they were part and parcel. I mean, think of Plutarch, for example, who was a priest at the uh, uh, at the Apollo's uh, Temple at Delphi. Uh, mm. but, but anyway, um, so the, one, of, one of the principles that we got from Plato's Republic is that uh, we, and as you already mentioned, is we wanted our children to be able to uh, have an instrument, uh, which we always started them out in piano, uh, sometimes it's stuck. Um, some went to guitar, some with the violin, but uh, we wanted them to have piano as a basis because uh, when Socrates is talking about how we're going to reach this great utopia, the golden age, uh, we need uh, our future kings, our future leaders uh, to be able to play music because music is that which uh, forms the soul, it forms the spirit. Socrates doesn't use uh, panuma, he only uses psuka. So that distinction between soul and spirit that I told you earlier, it's more mm. of a stoic uh, idea. I think um, Plato uses panuma only for flatulation. So my mm. Greek students get a big kick out of that. Uh, but um, <laughs> yeah, so if Plato were to read Paul and he'd just hear, you know, flatulent, flatulent, flatulent over and over again. But um, yeah. anyway, so we wanted them to have a, music, a musical instrument in order to train their soul, but also to be involved in a sport. Um, I, growing up in the deep South, as I mentioned before, we had the Holy Trinity, football, baseball, and basketball. That's what I grew up with. Um, but we lived overseas and, uh, those weren't really the major options. And we figured out that, um, as Socrates says, and Paul is going to echo this in Philippians, uh, don't say that I'm a citizen of Athens. I'm a citizen of the world. Um, mm. And so, we, you know, Athens is just dirt, according to Socrates. But we bought, there's this uh, fellowship of humanity that binds us all together, whether you're in Australia, Colorado, um, Germany, wherever it may be. Uh, and so, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. It happens a lot. I struggle with that. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Um, yeah. Uh, talking about basically <laughs> oh, um, that's yeah, the, the music and yeah. sport. And, yeah, that's right. So we chose uh, football, uh, soccer uh, in, in America, because we, we figured that if we're going to be citizens of the world. Then we need to love what the world loves. And mm. all of the world loves soccer, no matter where you go. It's like an international language uh, teaching them to do soccer. And so, again, uh, some of our kids, all of them started with soccer. Some of them have gone other places, but that's which uh, trains the body. And so, that's just one small example of uh, some insights that we've gleaned from philosophy that mm. has helped us parents. And this idea of music training the soul, as a musician, I'm particularly interested in this. And I feel like I wish I had have understood this when I was studying music. I wish I had have had this <laughs> deep connection that, that I have mm -hmm. to it now uh, back then. But um, in what ways do you feel that music does, uh, does nourish the soul? Yeah. So earlier I talked about how, um, the, the spirit of God is in our news. It's in our mind. And mm. so there's a part of reasoning, of thinking, of re coming and reasoning together that connects us with 
the divine logos uh, with with the spirit of God. Uh, but that that's just the, the brain. I think also uh, when we sing, when we play music, uh, I think that if we go back to Genesis chapter one, uh, or to creation, when God created the world, uh, that uh, part of this creation, uh, when he created us in his image, uh, is, is involved in music. And so I think uh, reasoning is one way that connects us with God, but also uh, music as another part of that creation mm. that God has put inside of us. And even if you're not a musically inclined, uh, music can move you in a way that seems supernatural or extraordinary. Yeah. And so uh, you have, um, I think it's Tolkien, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien in the Cimmerillion uh, and uh, C.S. Lewis. This is one thing that both of them do that at the creation of the world, God creates a world, whether it's Aslan or the, the God of Middle Earth, uh, by singing. And mm. so it's not the, and it's actually interesting. Genesis one is going to be poetry. It's Hebrew poetry. It's not prose. It's not great philosophy, but, but it's poetry that connects us kind of with that rhythm and that rhyme. And so, um, you have, uh, Aslan and, um, is it the last, but where is it? Um, the nephew, the, 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 uh, the magician and his nephew where he's singing as he sings, all of a sudden creation comes up. And so I think mm. part of that training of soul and whether Socrates would, uh, parse it out like this, I'm not sure. Uh, but the way that I think it's connected to soul is that I think God is a God of music who's a creator of music. And so the reason we're drawn to music and uh, when we engage in music and, and as a musician, you know, you kind of get a high. There, there's an adrenaline mm. that comes. There, there's this almost a, an, I don't know what's outer body experience to be mystical, but there, there's, you reach another level and see there's an X factor when you do music. Yeah. And I think that's part of that training of the soul now, interestingly enough, uh, with psycho modern day psychology and science, they're going to say that actually music trains the brain as well. So it's not mm. just connecting your soul, but uh, those who are good at piano usually are really good at mathematics, for example. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think I actually, I, I derive a lot of um, understanding about my own musical um, uh, endeavors from stuff like Taoism, for example, that this idea of like, when you finally shut up your overthinking mind, and you let go, mm -hmm. that's when whatever it is that makes all this work speaks. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I find that when I, cause I'm a jazz musician, right? So when I'm improvising mm -hmm. the moments, when I look back at it and I think, wow, that I was in the zone, I was in flow. I was, mm -hmm. that was the moment that just yeah. stood out to me at the concert, the high mm -hmm. point. Those are the mm -hmm. moments when I just let everything go. I let go all of my own judgments about myself and can I do this? Can I sing this? Can I not? And I just let go, you know, and mm. that's the moment when, um, you know, it, it, it almost is like grace. It's like, Hey, you know what? Mm. I'm not going to get this perfect. Stop trying to think it's going to be perfect. Uh -huh. Just go for yeah. it. Right. Um, just yeah. try to make it as beautiful as possible. And, um, there's many moments like that, but yeah, I'm trying to understand, you know, the, 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 theology behind music the philosophy mm -hmm. behind music what is it that mm -hmm. makes something beautiful but yeah you know joey i just want to thank you so much this has just been uh, can, a can really i put one punctuation please yeah on that absolutely. do you mind um so i'm not a expert in music so don't uh, let anyone think that uh, but it's interesting in ephesians 5 paul says don't get drunk with wine which leads to wastedness um but instead be filled with the spirit and then he tells you how mm. to be spirit filled with the spirit by singing to one another mm. in psalms, uh, hymns and spiritual songs, making music in your heart to the Lord. And so for Paul, the way that you're filled with the Spirit of God involves singing and worshiping and playing instruments. And of course, that connects him back to his Jewish underwear where uh, they didn't just cite the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Bible, uh, but instead 
they would sing it, uh, they would meditate on it. Um, and so part of uh, connecting with God is and with one another is through music. Mm. No, I think that's beautiful. And, and that's, I think that that's valuable for people who are studying religion. And I think it's valuable for people studying philosophy. I mean, um, you know, there were philosophers in Greece who wouldn't allow students to learn from them unless they had first learned the art of music or, or you know, astrology or these other disciplines <laughs> that can connect us <laughs> with something bigger. Um, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And Joey, again, thank you so much. This has been yeah. awesome. I want to have you back as many times as possible. Mm. Um, and, uh, and seriously, you've just given us a wealth of information. So I'm going to put all the links in the show notes to where people can buy your books, but, mm. uh, but thank you so much. Okay. All right. Grace and peace. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the practical stoic podcast. If you'd like to sign up for email updates, join my Patreon meetup groups that we hold weekly, or if you'd like to offer feedback or suggestions for future guests or topics on the show, then you can head to simonjedrew.com. There you'll also find information about how we can work one-on-one together with my alignment coaching, based around the philosophical principles found in Stoicism. Finally, if you are on Facebook, then I'd love to see you in our group, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But hey, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I'll talk to you next time.